What we must remember when someone purchases from us is they were already filling up their entire 24 hours a day, seven days a week doing something. Whether it was wasteful or useful doesn't matter. They were making decisions, taking actions or inactions or reactions, and they were filling up their time. Now they have just purchased something. And we know as a service provider, in order for them to get the outcome that we are promising, they have to do the work. Is your current success putting a lot of demands on you? If you're good at what you do, and you are, then everyone wants you. But that's no way to scale. If you're delivering spectacular results, you should be commanding higher fees, working with only the best clients. Welcome to the Hands Off CEO Podcast, where world-class agency owners and consultants learn how to fully monetize their expertise and scale profits by doing less. Here's your host, Mandy Ellison. Hello, this is Mandy Ellison, host of the Hands Off CEO podcast. Today on the show, we have Megan Huber from Structured Freedom. Now, Megan, she is a scalability expert specifically for coaches, for expert-based businesses where they're teaching an expertise based on a curriculum-based learning, but it's a different kind of business model than businesses that we work with. So Megan and I have known each other for a number of years, and we have worked together back and forth. And we actually, this last year, hired her as a consultant to come into our company and to give another perspective and to be able to support our team with this. I just wanted to have her come on the podcast because she has a really great perspective on onboarding and she has a great perspective on how that fits in the overall big picture perspective of scaling a service. While she is talking about it relative to coaching businesses, it has complete applicability to all different kinds of service businesses, including agencies and consulting companies, which is the kind of companies we work with. So if you're listening to this and you have a coaching company and you're looking at how do I scale this coaching company or expertise-based type of company where you're not doing any kind of done-for-you service, definitely you should be reaching out to Megan because they could really support you. Those aren't the kind of businesses that we support at Hands Off CEO. So I wanted to introduce her to our audience for that reason. And also just to have this great conversation back and forth because Megan and I do collaborate on just because there's so much overlap in the work that we do at Hands Off CEO and the work that she does at Structured Freedom. So I am so thrilled to have you on the show, Megan. Yeah. So I'm going to start with saying this because this is a statistic that a lot of folks are not thinking about or they don't know it exists or they're not recognizing it. I really think they just don't know that it exists. And it is that you have to remember that when someone goes from being a lead and a prospect, you have a particular type of relationship with them. And we're always told in marketing and sales, you've got to build the know, like, and trust. Well, the relationship, once that person purchases, the moment they purchase, the moment their credit card goes through, literally the second it goes through, that relationship becomes a brand new relationship. So they're no longer a lead, they're no longer a prospect. Now it's more like consultant client or coach client or service provider client. What's going on in the mind of that now brand new client is they are now looking at you in a new way. You have to reestablish all of that, really the trust. They already know you, they already like you, although I do believe they are still looking at you like, I'm not sure if I really love this person yet. I'm not really sure if I trust this person yet. You haven't delivered anything to them yet. So they are coming from a place of judging you. They're literally judging you and judging their experience and judging what you're delivering to them even after they put down their credit card, gave you their down payment, 
the transactions, you got to go all the way back through the no like, and trust, but from the client consultant perspective. So the statistic is when your clients join your program, they're making all these assessments about you, about their ability, about your program, your delivery, their experience, all those things. They're looking at it very closely in the first 90 days of their time with you, working with you. And many people are actually making a decision somewhere in those first 90 days if they are going to stay with you or leave. What does leave mean? Leave might mean they eventually just stop participating and engaging, but they keep paying their money. It could mean that they do keep participating and engaging and showing up and obviously paying their money. And that's the one where you're like, I can't believe they didn't renew with me when they got to the end of the contract because they got great results and they showed up and they were participating. And that's where people get really, really shocked. It's when they have people who either don't renew their contract or do not buy another solution that you offer that you know solves a problem they have that you have identified You've had that conversation with them. They're not buying it. And they're just kind of leaving your ecosystem. They're actually making that decision somewhere in the first 90 days of their engagement with you as a paying client. They're not waiting until the end of the contract cycle to then let me sit here and decide if I want to stay or go. They've actually already assessed that. And they're assessing it based on a few things. I mean, obviously, it's what's the experience that you provided to them right out of the gate What was their experience with you, your material, your team, how they felt? Were they satisfied? Did they get results early? Do they feel like they're the right fit? Your client is even assessing that. Your client is assessing right out of the gate. They thought they were a good fit when they purchased, but they're they're trying to find out if they're a good fit once they have already purchased. So all those types of things are going through their mind. And if they don't feel like they belong or they're not in the right place, and they're deciding that very quickly, then it's tough to get them to stay if they've already made that decision that quickly. So that's a really important statistic to understand is real. That's a very relevant number. And it really will help you look through a very different lens when it comes to onboarding your brand new clients. I love the answer that you just gave it. It makes so much sense. And That's something that I hadn't actually thought about that at the very end of your engagement, when someone is not moving forward at the next step, because I know that that's one of your expertises I know is actually re-enrollment and the retention. Retention strategies is something that maybe that's something that would be interesting another, do another podcast episode on another time. That's really interesting about how that's a make or break in the first 90 days. Yeah, it is. I want to share just like a, a big picture And people can kind of like visualize this. If you're visualizing pillars of a building, pillars in a row, when it comes to client success, because we're just talking about onboarding. Onboarding is one piece or one pillar of the total that I call client success. And the goal with client success from a company perspective is obviously you want your clients to be getting great results. If you're a good person and you are have a good heart and you're leading from that place, Obviously, you want your clients to get great results. There are a lot of organizations where clients aren't getting great results. So when it comes to client success, it's about that. And it's also about how satisfied your clients are, how happy they are. And it's about client expansion. When I say client expansion, I mean they're buying other things from you. They're either renewing 
And if you've got one main program and it's going to take them three to five years of being in that same incubator, you want them there for the five years for them to get the full experience and the full really reach the full possibility and probability of what can happen when the two of you are partnering together. So it could be they're re-enrolling into the same program. It could be you provide other solutions. Other problems are coming up. You have created the solutions. And so you want to move them into that other solution, whether it's a next level or some lateral offer, some other offer. So that's expansion. And then we have after that advocacy. So advocacy is when they're very loyal. They're literally bringing people to you. They're bringing the right people to you. They're singing your praises, you, your company, your brand, your offers, whatever they are. I call that invisible marketing. It's where you're not even having to ask people. They're just sending people your way. You want those advocates. You want advocates of your brand. What I did leave out is retention. So it goes onboarding and then retention, then expansion, and then advocacy. And retention is great. And the difference between retention and expansion is retention means they're showing up. They're going through the material. They're doing the work. They're participating. They're engaging. They're part of the community. They're not just like, if your engagement is a 12-month long engagement, it means they're not like drifting away and falling off the face of the earth four months in. If that's happening, you're not retaining that client and that whatever it is that they purchased that you delivered. So that's the big picture of what this looks like, onboarding retention, expansion, advocacy. And we're just going to talk about this first pillar of onboarding. I really like what you shared there. You said onboarding, retention, advocacy. Did I miss one? Expansion and then advocacy. Okay. Expansion, then advocacy. So onboarding's feeding all of that. Onboarding is the first pillar where we have most people thinking is just, well, I want you to buy more. I want you to buy once your contract is over. I want you to buy the next thing. Why are you not buying the next thing? Why are more people not staying? And it's because number one, we didn't have a strategy. There was no onboarding strategy. There was no retention strategy. If those two things aren't in place, look, you can do onboarding. You can do retention. It's just like you can pay your taxes, but do you have a tax strategy? Who's gonna pay less in taxes? Who's gonna come out? The person who pays their taxes or the person who has a tax strategy. You're both paying taxes, but who's going to come out better? It's the person who has a tax strategy that they followed all year long, not just when it was time to pay the taxes. It's the same with onboarding. Do you have an onboarding strategy? Do you have a retention strategy? It's not that you're not doing it. Everybody's doing some form of onboarding. If you have paying clients, you're onboarding them. Now we just want to introduce a strategy that is this longer term, sustainable, consistency. it's giving consistency to your business long term. I mean, if I'm just going to make it sound super easy, it's have a strategy for it. You're already doing it. We're not doing any really anything extra. You're already doing it. We just want to have a strategy around that. I love the way that you laid this out, because I think that there's this misconception that selling is done a prospect and then they become a client. Selling is done there. And then selling is done on the re-enrollment call. And The reality is, is that selling is done all the way through. You need to have ways to be able to enroll your clients to be able to actually do the work that you need them to do in order to get the results you need. That applies whether it's a, a coaching business, like the kind of businesses that you work with, or it applies if you have uh, an agency type of service where you're doing work for the client because you still need them to show up and give you the assets, the resources, and to support the project. And If you are not able to sell them on the reason why they should take the next step and the next step and the next step, 
then you're not going to be able to get them to the place where the advocacy stage that you're talking about. Exactly. And then we end up being really shocked and perplexed and wondering why people didn't renew or enroll in something else when their contract is up. And here's what I hear a lot of people say. They'll say, but the person got such great results. They got results. And so here's the other thing to understand about your client who is now a buyer all over again. Your clients, they're still buyers too. And they're your best buyer because they're the easiest and they don't cost hardly anything. So we want to get your acquisition costs down as well. The buyer is not thinking about, and this is just changing the lens that you're looking at things through. The buyer is not thinking about the past value you gave them when they're making a decision about buying from you again. That's huge. What the buyer is thinking about is what are you going to give me in the future, which is the exact same thing they're thinking when they bought from you the very first time they purchased from you. All they care about is what's a result I'm going to get working with you and what is my future going to look like? They're thinking the exact same thing even after they've worked with you for an entire cycle, whatever amount of time that is, they think the exact same thing. I don't care that you gave me all this value back here. Yes, I know I got results, but you can't rely on all the value you gave me. What are you going to give me moving forward? So that's also really important to remember when it comes to sales within your current client base. Absolutely. And you know, one of the things that I have heard a number of agencies talk about their clients are like, what have you done for me lately? They find that that's, that's frustrating, that mindset that the clients have. And I'm just like, well, of course they're going to have that. That is the mindset. They are investing in their company. They're not giving you money based on what you did last month. But another point too, is that if you have a model that is on a monthly basis, where you're setting up a scenario for clients wanting you just to be the monkey that's going to dance and that's going to direct you all over the place and micromanage you. And that's one of the things that we talk about with the Irresistible Offer and really looking at what is the full program that you're going to be offering? What is the full outcome? And I mean, looking at it as a minimum of a year-long program, because if you can create any type of big outcome, it's going to take some time. And then you can manage a whole program like you're talking about here, as opposed to these month-to-month type of agreements that only intensifies this type of, it's almost like having to re-enroll your client every month. Yes. I'm so glad you brought this up. I'm going to keep referencing the onboarding, but this is also ongoing, like you said, throughout the whole entire engagement with the client. What we as service providers must remember is that, yes, we know that somebody just made a purchase. And for the listeners, you might be selling something that is extremely high ticket, like 50K, 100K higher. Something that we hear a lot in the coaching industry, and you see this a lot on social media posts, it's that, well, if your client pays more, the commitment is higher. I actually don't agree with that statement because from the data I've collected, it doesn't always equal out to that. So what we must remember when someone purchases from us is they were already filling up their entire 24 hours a day, seven days a week doing something. Whether it was wasteful or useful doesn't matter. They were making decisions, taking actions or inactions or reactions, and they were filling up their time. Now they have just purchased something. And we know as a service provider, in order for them to get the outcome that we are promising, they have to do the work. We all know that. It doesn't matter what we're selling or what the outcome is. The client 
has to take full responsibility and ownership, and they've got to 100% commit and do the work. Now it's up to us to provide them the environment and the tools and equip them with the skills and the knowledge so that they can. Obviously, we want to make good on the promise that we made. We want our delivery to equal whatever we were saying in our marketing and in our sales conversations. Not only are we asking them to do the work, we're asking them to show up to our calls at the times we have decided we're going to host them. We're asking them to implement our strategies, our tactics, and follow our systems and our processes and our strategies. What comes up immediately inside, in the body and the mind, physical body and the mind, and the emotions of your new client? And you teach on this, Mandy. Resistance. Resistance immediately comes up to all of that. So in their minds, they're like, I don't want to do this. I didn't come up with this. And you incorporate so much of this in the onboarding part of your program with helping them find the time and all the things that you're doing and what you're training them on and teaching them. It's to kind of get over that hump. And so a tip that I'll share with everyone, anytime you're asking your clients, especially if you're working with high level people, this is so important. Every time you're asking them to do something, tell them why you're asking them to do it. And share with them what the outcome of taking that action is going to be. We can't just push and force and shove people into our model and our construct because the client is thinking, why? Why is this important to me? Kind of like what you just said. It's like, what have you given me lately? You can actually overcome that thought if you are basically selling them to do the work, but selling them on the outcome. What's the benefit of you showing up to today's call? What's the benefit of you taking this action? What's the benefit of you doing this activity in the membership portal? What's the benefit of whatever you're asking them to do? So constantly sell them on the benefit and the outcome of every single thing you're asking them to do. And really that's just a shift and a very small shift in your language And the way that you're communicating with them, whether it's video or written or you're speaking to them, it doesn't matter what the modality is. It's just a slight shift in your communication style and the words that you're using with them, because then they'll get it. When you communicate with your clients in that way, it's a lot less heavy lifting for you. And that's what I really desire to do when I come into someone's company. The company owner feels like they're carrying so much of the weight on their back. And I come in with things like we're talking about here to remove some of that burden off. And a lot of it is how are you communicating? How are you languaging everything? And there's just these little things that you can do and shift. And it makes a massive difference in the long run. The challenge that I was having, and one of the reasons why I know you've come on and supported our team with this, is that I don't have any problem at all enrolling people and selling people on the next step, the next step. But the rest of the team does not have those skills because those are skills that you learn, especially as a CEO, as you're becoming better at sales and marketing. You know how to be able to move people into action. That's just a skill that you develop as you're getting better as a business owner. It's a required thing, but your team doesn't have those skills. So in standardizing that into the process within the onboarding system and really for the rest of all of your systems, but specifically through your onboarding system, that's one of the things that I see makes a big difference in allowing you to step back as a CEO. Is that what you've seen too? Yes, for sure. Absolutely. Megan, I'm really glad that we built some context on this first before we went into the list of requirements. I think this was a really good conversation to have to really look at the big picture for where this fits in and how critical it is. There's also another book that I read a while back. It's called 
Never Lose Another Customer from Joey yes, Coleman. Yes, I, I love that read. book. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he was also sharing some statistics around how, I'm just remembering that's the top of my head, but the vast majority of drop-offs will happen in the first 90 days for companies not re-enrolling. And he was pointing to a lot of banks. Banks was one of the examples that he used. That was just a great book that I've read on the subject. And I wanted just to point that out because it was backing up all the things that you were saying. Yeah. You know, I observed that and studied this. There was a period of time in between the two businesses that I've had where I worked for, and you know, a lot of my story, Mandy, where I was the director of client success for a very, very large scale coaching company. We would sell a 12 month long program and between two to 300 people every time we launched would enroll into that program. Obviously, in my role, you want to see people engage, participate, be in community, take action, do the work that we're assigning them to do, keep showing up, stay with us. And then ultimately, our big goal was we wanted them to renew another year into the program because the way it was structured, it just made sense that a lot of those people would do another year. And then obviously, we had higher level programs that other folks would move into. In this particular program, it doubled as a certification program. And the people who were getting certified, actually, they were required to submit modules every two weeks. And I was also leading the certification team that would check through all of that and kind of sign off on it. And my very first year that I was there, this was back in 2014, to back up the statement in the book that you just shared, I saw our first significant drop-off of participation and engagement happening around two and a half to three months in the program. Now, this was not people just started paying. So when we say drop off, it's not that people just stop paying necessarily. It doesn't mean people are asking for their money back. It's not that people are doing chargebacks. It's that they just literally fall off the face of the earth. You no longer see them in the community. You no longer see them on calls. They're not asking questions. They're not submitting modules if you have any of that. They're not submitting their work and you have no idea where they've gone. And it's, it's a relatively, it's a large chunk of people. So if, you're, if you've got 300 people in a program, you may see 50 people drop off, 75 people just like totally drop off. And so I thought, hmm, and I started investigating that. So this is important because you wanna be tracking this. You wanna watch for these types of things. You always wanna watch the behavior of your clients. That's a behavior, that's an action. We then need to go in and investigate and evaluate and analyze why is this happening? How do you figure that out? Back then, what we were looking at is, was it a certain module? Was it a certain piece of, was it a topic that once we got to a topic, and uh, I don't know if this is a coincidence or not, at that time, that's when we were talking about ideal client, or I think we had maybe a few weeks prior, but that was the topic that everybody got stuck on. And they would just spin and spin. It was like they could never get over this conversation or confusion around ideal client. It was as if people felt like, maybe I don't have what it takes. I'm embarrassed. I can't move forward. So they would just sort of like bail out. A lot of people bail out, especially if they're in a group, because they are embarrassed. Because they feel like everybody else is further along than me already, just a few weeks in. These people are smarter than me. They're faster than me. They have something that I don't have. And I literally feel like a loser over here. And I know that we're all working with really intelligent, smart adults, but everybody feels those feelings. We all have the same type of thoughts. We all have thoughts of being an imposter. We all have thoughts of not being confident. 
we all compare ourselves to other people. So just because you're working with a group of adults doesn't mean that they're not having those experiences. And when people stop engaging, that's actually one of the top reasons in any type of group setting why people are not showing up anymore. It's because they are embarrassed and they also think they can't catch up. So you'll actually hear people say, I'm so far behind, which is not even true. They're actually making up. That's not even a truth. It's not a fact. It's a thought. I'm so far behind. There's no way I can get caught up. And they're comparing themselves to everybody else who's asking different questions and who seems to be just like crushing it and killing it. So you want to track this data and then it happens again the next 90 days. So again, if you're with people for a year long engagement, the first drop off is the first 90 days. You see it again at six months and then you see just a little bit of a drop off. It's pretty rare though. At nine months, you got to figure out why. I would say the number one thing that everybody needs to be doing is having conversations and collecting feedback from your clients. Pick up the phone and call them and find out what's actually going on. It's really important to collect feedback towards the end of the onboarding process. Because if you don't collect data then from them and you're not collecting feedback and there's no touch point around how are things going for you, how are we doing? What do you like? What would you like to see improved? How can we serve you better? You can catch it. You can catch it and you can shift. You can turn the ship around if they're even slightly disgruntled versus waiting to collect feedback from them too many months down the road. And then you just don't have enough of a timeline left to try to convince them to stay or engage or whatever you want them to do. So I would say also in onboarding, it's that needs to be your first point of collecting feedback from clients and find out what their experiences is like for them. And you can save yourself. You can save the client. You can save yourself if you need to at that time. It's a lot easier. That's great feedback. We've changed some of the earlier onboarding that we've done with our clients with our irresistible offer. That's a pretty heavy lift. As you know, you've gone through our processes because it creates such a huge transformation, you know, doubling, tripling, quadrupling fees in many cases. And it brings up a lot of resistance. We know that we have it tracked week by week. We know emotionally where they're going to be at. And like, I'm just like, heads up, everybody. Week two, this is hard, guys. This is how you might show up this way, this way, this way. And you might go and hide out and we're going to take you and pull you out of that cave and help you show up. But because we know that, we know how to help them be able to show up and get results. And where this came from is that what we actually saw with, it would take like six months or longer for our clients to get these processes. And the interesting thing about it is that I used to do more one-on-one with them in that. And now we put this into a group cohort where ironically, I'm actually doing less one-on-one and more in a group setting. And it's increased the quality of it. And it has brought a peer level of support where people show up more. We get through the process in one month as opposed to six months or more. And it actually gets done. And we make sure that every single one of our clients have a client success map that they feel confident they could sell for at least 50 to 600% higher price point. I wanted to use that as an example because by doing that and testing that and refining that process, we were able to increase the quality at the same time, reduce the amount of time that it took for them to get a result, administrative time for us to chase clients to try to get them to do the work, try to get them to show up on. I wanted just to exemplify what you were sharing. Yeah, I love that. Just listening to you talk about that, about helping them get a win. I mean, what you're also saying is like, we want to get them on the right track early. 
And you mentioned so many things. Again, one of the things that you do so beautifully is you've done this long enough and you've worked with so many people that you literally, like you said, you know exactly what's going on in their head when it comes to different points throughout the program. And that really deserves even a little bit more airtime because what so many of us service providers are looking at is just their behavior and their action. Oftentimes we're also thinking, I've definitely struggled with this over the years in my business where you know that you're promising them something and results are very important to you. You also are a very high integrity and you want to make sure you're doing whatever doggone possible to ensure that your clients are actually getting the results that you are promising or guaranteeing in your program. And with that comes a lot of pressure. It comes a lot of stress. And also, I can only speak for myself. It caused me to be very self-focused. I was very focused on how I felt and I didn't want anybody to be disgruntled with me. I didn't want anybody to be mad at me. I didn't want anybody to think that I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't want anyone to think I was providing an awful service. And so I was always thinking about myself. And what that will do is when you're only thinking about yourself, then you're not as connected with how your clients are dealing with things on an emotional and psychological level, because that's driving all the behavior and all the actions and all the decisions that you see from your clients, it's coming from a belief. It's coming from a set of thoughts. It's coming from feelings. And so the more you understand psychologically, the psychological stages they're going through in their own mind, in their own world, as they advance through your curriculum or your offer, your program, your service, whatever it is, the more you can actually help to prevent that from happening by equipping them with the knowledge and the skills and the support that they're going to need before that even happens. And so I'm just going to kind of list this off, Mandy, and not do like a big dissertation on this. This is something that you and I have done in your company. So there are seven forms of communication that are really important in the onboarding process. And the format and modality of the way you deliver it, it doesn't matter. It's like whatever's on brand for you, do it. Whatever makes sense, do it. It could be on live calls. It can be a series of automated emails. It can be audio. It could be video. It could be something that you send home to them. And it could be a combination of any of those. And it could be more than one style or format of communication to cover one of these. So there's seven different we'll call them like focus points that you wanna integrate into your onboarding process using any of those modalities. And you wanna do them in this order. So if you're listening, write it down and you could probably like go design this on your own. The first one is trust. And this is essentially delivering to them exactly what you just sold to them immediately after they make the purchase. And obviously you're not giving them the whole entire service, but you're at least some sort of welcome email where you're using the same language that you just used with them on the sales page. If they have access to some sort of portal or to schedule calls or whatever that first step is, deliver that to them. So trust is the very first thing because that's going to prevent buyer's remorse as much as we could possibly prevent it. Buyer's remorse happens within the first 24 to 48 hours of most of us. We all have the same brain. All of us have the exact same brain. So most of us have buyer's remorse within the first 48 hours. The second thing you want to do is introduce them to your team specifically the team that they're going to be engaging with. And so what that does, that's also another trust builder. 
And you want to do that very quickly. You want to edify your team. You want to elevate your team. You want to show their face. And again, you could do like a really cool video that's on brand, but let your clients get to know the people who are there to serve and support them. That also helps them not rely on you for all the support and all the results as the business owner. You don't want them to think the only way they can get results is if they have access to you. So really elevate your team. The third is objections. And this is right after teams. And you're thinking, what are the objections that my client has of doing the work? They already made the purchase, but what are the objections they have about taking the action? What are the objections they have about showing up to the calls? What are the objections they have about building the skills or being persistent, consistent, whatever it is for you? Like everybody's business is a little different. The fourth thing that you want to introduce is misconceptions. What are the misconceptions your clients are bringing with them about what it's going to take for them to get the result that you're promising? Again, everybody's is going to be different. I'm going to make something up. Maybe someone thinks buying a business coaching product, I'm going to be able to make $100,000 in one week. Okay, like not going to happen if you have not ever made $10,000 in a month. It's just not going to happen. Like that's going to take a while. And so that's a misconception. So you want to think through what are the misconceptions my clients have about the promise I made in the program about the result that I'm helping them get. And we want to go ahead and overcome those and deal with that now. And you're probably going to be reiterating that throughout your whole entire program as well. The fifth is show them, teach them how to get a win in your program early. Yes, you also want to help them get some quick wins. They can also be very small. But small wins is what creates momentum. But show them how to get the win. How do they have to think? What do they have to believe? What do they have to do? And what's on the other side of that win? What's that going to do for them on the other side of it? The sixth thing is simplify. This is where you are reminding them and showcasing to them, you are here because we have a process. We've been through all the pain. We've experienced all the problems. We've made all the mistakes. And because of that, we have created this seven-step system. We have created this process. All you have to do is stick with us, trust us, trust yourself, follow the process, but actually kind of lay it out a little bit for them so they can see what those milestones are going to be along the way. And then the last one is proof. This is number seven. And proof is You're putting your existing successful clients in front of your new clients. Because again, psychologically, they're thinking, I can't do this. I can't do this because I'm bringing XYZ baggage to the table. Or, you know, I'm not starting with a lot of capital. Or I'm a single mom with three kids. I don't have time for this, that, and the other. Well, go find some clients that you currently have. Put them in front of your new clients. You could actually have them speak on a live call. Or it could be recorded case studies. It could be a combination of case studies you're using for marketing, but I would look at this in a bit more intimate way because now these people are your clients. So help introduce them to successful people who also had struggle. Your new clients want to know that everybody else struggled too because of the way they're feeling. In their minds, they're thinking, I don't know if I can do this. Even if they're the smartest person on the planet, we all have those things inside of us. So you want your existing clients to talk about the struggles they had, the wins they had, but also I think this is super important. How have they been successful in your program? 
How have they been successful using your service? How have they successfully utilized the support and the team available? That's you training your clients how to think, what to believe, and how to act so that they're actually way easier to work with and they're not a pain in the tail and they have a phenomenal experience and it really empowers them. The seven steps I just laid out, it's really empowering your clients to take the ownership and think for themselves so that they are not so reliant because if they're reliant on you, to be sure at some point they're going to get really resentful because something is not going to go the way they wanted it to because of what they're thinking in their head. And again, you can overcome so, so much of that can be overcome in the onboarding process. I love that. And I know you're sharing these steps very specifically for a program, like a coaching type of program. And a lot of our listeners have done for you services where they have agencies, they have consulting companies where they're actually doing the work. But this still applies for those type of business models. It does because it's based on psychology and all humans are the same. All humans have the same brain. It doesn't matter what any of us have accomplished in the past. It doesn't matter how successful we are. We all have the exact same brain. So we're all going through those same psychological stages and we're going through the same set of emotions, no matter what it is that we're buying. doesn't matter what it is. I love that. The seven forms of communication. Thanks so much for sharing that, Megan. Thanks for sharing all the other context around how important it is for the onboarding process and how that fits from onboarding to retention, then to expansion, then to advocacy, so that you end up having clients that are actually singing your praises, filling your business with new clients, new ideal clients, and just generally making it easier to scale. So I really appreciate you giving so generously today, Megan. How can people reach you? Yeah, the easiest place would be somewhere on social media. So if you are a LinkedIn person or an Instagram person or a Facebook person, connect with me there, friend me, connect with me, send me a message. On all of those, I am Megan J. Huber. So there's a J, the initial J in the middle, but that's the fastest, easiest way to connect with me. Sounds great. Well, I know I follow you on social channels and you have really great content to share. So thanks again for coming on the Hands Off CEO podcast, Megan. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me.